16 is where we will be this morning as we continue walking through the book of Acts, asking the question, now what? Right? Jesus is long gone at this point, ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And now the disciples um, had to answer the question, now what do we do? How do we do this? And we've seen the gospel go forward. We've seen the gospel grow and spread as the, uh, the, what Jesus said before he left, that you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're kind of in that ends of the earth section now. The gospel has started in Jerusalem, started in the temple courts, and has spread gradually even to the Samaritans, even to the Gentiles. And now the gospel continues to go forward. And so we've been walking through this book for most of this year, uh, and we will continue to this morning in Acts 16. Um, there's an old adage it's mostly in combat sports, but also just in sports in general. There's no that. It just says, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Meaning, we make plans, we have ideas, we have dreams on how things should go. And this goes beyond sports. It goes into life. This is how I think should go. This is how my life should go. This is how my job, my, my vocation, my relationships, this is the plan. This is the goals here. And everyone has these plans and dreams, and we try to pursue them up until we meet conflict, we meet uh, adversity, we meet something that stops us, and now we have to pivot from the plan, we have to pivot from the dream, and how do we respond when our best laid plans are in turmoil? In 1871, I know you guys are all familiar with this, but 1871, the Great Chicago Fire happened, burned down most of the city, um, wrecked everything. The city was in shambles, in ruin, and it was a tragedy, especially if you were a real estate investor, such as a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a very successful attorney. He was well-respected, well-liked, had a wife, had five kids, had everything. Fire happens, and he loses everything. A few months after the Chicago fire happened, and he lost all of his investments, lost fortune, because all of his money was tied up in real estate, few months later, his son, his four-year-old son, passes away from scarlet fever. Things were not going well for the Spafford family. Wanting to get away, wanting to mourn and grieve and just rest and recover from these tragedies, Horatio books a vacation for his family. Let's go to England. Let's get out of here. Let's just get away and go be. And so he books a trip, and he sends his wife and his four daughters on a ship. He stays back because he's trying to handles some business back here, trying to rebuild his lost empire. And so he sends his wife and daughters to go to England. He'll catch up with them later. That ship collides with another ship, and over 200 people lose their lives, including Horatio's four daughters. His wife was one of the survivors. She is taken ashore. She gets settled, and she sends a message to her husband, saved alone. What shall I do? How do you respond to adversity? We respond to adversity based on where our foundation is. What do you hold dear? What do you trust? When everything else has been turned upside down, where is your solid base? Today, as I said, we're going to continue in Acts, and Paul and his fellow servants of God are facing once again another obstacle, another adversity to the gospel, and everything seems bleak. Let's pray and let's jump in and get to work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to worship you. We thank you for this place, this building, this community, this neighborhood, this 
opportunity that you've given us to gather and to sing and to pray and read and fellowship and be together. God, we come here for a variety of reasons, but most of all, we come here to hear and engage with you, to be encouraged, built up. God, regardless of what kind of week we had, regardless of what kind of morning we had, we need you. We need more of you. We can never have enough of you in us, with us. Worship this morning as we sing, as we pray, as we engage with your word, as we hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, encourage us in places we need to be, rebuke us, strengthen us. God, you are making us more and more into your likeness and image. And so, God, we ask that this morning would be an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for you to speak into us and to call us closer into a relationship with you, deeper into a relationship with you. That it would be a time this morning where we can evaluate and question where is our hope? Where is our foundation? Where, where do we place our faith in you and importance in our life? God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Acts 16. We're going to uh, pick it up in verse, um, in verse 16, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back and talk about it. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And that when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us, to, us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received the order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. 
And the jailer reported the words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So the group, at this point, it is Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, maybe some others, have made their way to Philippi, right? They were trying to go into Asia, and God had kept them from doing so. And they traveled on to Troas, they sail across, they get to Philippi, and they meet there. And they are now on their way to the place of prayer. We looked last week that there was a group of women meeting on the riverbank because there weren't enough Jewish men to have a synagogue in Philippi at the time. And so there was a group of faithful women, worshipers of God, who were gathering on the riverbank, holding prayer services, holding services. And one of those being Lydia. We talked about how Paul gave the gospel and she became a Christian. And so they go and they meet on this place of prayer, like I said, probably the riverbank. This might have been a Sunday morning at this point. Either way, a slave girl has been following Paul and Silas around for many days, and she's crying out, she's yelling as she follows them. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Where's the lie? Isn't that exactly what this group of men are doing? What she says is true, 100%. They were sent to proclaim the way of salvation. They were sent to proclaim the gospel, to give the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, died on the cross for our sins in our place, was buried, rose again, defeating sin and death and hell, and rose and ascended to the Father in heaven. And it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your sins can be forgiven. You can have a new relationship with God. That is what they are proclaiming. They were sent to proclaim the way of salvation. But this idea of salvation, being saved, it means different things to different people at different times. What does it mean to be saved? Right? If I ask the question, what does it mean to be saved in this context, hopefully, if we pass the microphone around, we would get some answers revolving around Jesus, cross, sin, things like that would come up, and we would talk about our spiritual salvation. But if I ask that question, what does it mean to save someone? What does it mean for you to be saved? And I ask that to a person who is drowning. That person, through garbled water, would say, you need to help me out of the water. You need to help me float. Right? In different contexts, saved is going to take different forms. I'm in a mess. I'm in trouble, and I need to get out of it. I need to be saved from it. Context Matters, And in this context, in Philippi, in this highly diverse Roman city, pagan city, the idea of salvation spiritually in that way that we would talk about salvation, that would be seen as an outsider idea. That would be seen as crazy talk. That would be seen as something that had nothing to do with most Roman citizens. But to get back to the slave girl, she's following Paul and Silas for days, proclaiming this truth, saying something true, saying something that is totally correct. So why does Paul shut it down? Everyone has a reputation. 
And with that reputation comes influence. Depending on your reputation depends on how much influence you have. It is what much of the advertisement we see on television and social media is what most of our economy is based on, right? A famous athlete is wearing a certain type of shoe. What is that commercial communicating? You wear that shoe, you could be like that athlete. Or a celebrity or some person that has some kind of name recognition, name value, they endorse a product. And because we like that celebrity, because we associate good and trustworthiness with that person, now that product they are endorsing makes it, it, makes it seem like, oh, we, we should buy that because that person likes it. And we like them, they make us laugh. Reputation and influence are connected. The slave girl's reputation is that of a spiritual, basically she's a witch. She's a fortune teller. And she has made great money for her masters, which means that the people trusted her opinion, and it means people were coming back to her. She had repeat customers because she has made much money for her owners. She had a reputation, and so because of that reputation, Paul does not want to be identified with her. More so, Paul does not want the name of Jesus to be identified with her. In that, she doesn't want, Paul doesn't want Jesus to be lumped in as just another idea of spirit or another deity or just some other pagan god for the Roman people to ignore. Because Jesus is much more than that. The gospel is much more than that. Paul clearly knew this woman was possessed by a demon. We see Jesus do the same thing over and over again in the gospels when he would encounter someone who was demon-possessed. The demon, because the demons knew who Jesus was. Over and over again, when Jesus would interact with someone who was possessed, those demons would cry out, you are the son of God. You are the most high. What are you going to do to us, most high one? And every time, Jesus would tell that demon, be quiet, and he'd shut it down. But again, why? If it's truth and it's correct, why should it be stopped? Because something good, something can start beautiful, something can start good, something can start with truth. And so many cults, so many false teachers, so many liars and abusers start with the good. They start with truth. They start with the things that everyone's going to agree on, and that's their in. What they say sounds true, and it's, it's factual. It sounds right. And then over time, they take these little steps farther and farther away from truth, farther away, farther away from what is right, what is good, what is holy. And eventually, they get totally off base and totally away from where we started. Be careful who you listen to. Just because the book, the church, the pastor, the podcast, just because it has the word Christian in it, just because it floats around a couple of key ideas about Bible and God, and it throws around some of that words that we use in church often, it doesn't mean it's good, it doesn't mean it's right. We have to do the legwork. We have to do the, the work to evaluate and take things to Scripture and ask questions and be sure to, does this actually line up with what God has been teaching us, what, what Scripture actually has to say? Paul finally has enough of this servant girl, and he tells the demon, get out. And what's the point out here, he doesn't say, because of my authority, because I'm Paul and I said so, because I have clout, because I have a reputation. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, it is by his power and authority that Paul does all things. And so as we've seen time and time again in the book of Acts, the gospel goes forward. Good things are happening there's this group meeting and praying. They've heard the gospel. They've received it. And then, of course, someone has a problem. Someone has an issue and somebody wants to fight. 
Namely, it's the slave girl's owners who don't like what just happened because their easy money, their meal ticket was just taken from them. And when a person's money is attacked, when their way of living is attacked, they will respond with reckless abandon at times. These men seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace, into the town square, and to the local authorities. And so you see in verse 20, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Immediately, they're trying to paint Paul and Silas as outsiders. They're different from us. Most of all, they're not Roman. They're Jews. They're those other kind of people. And that's mostly why, that's why scholars believe that they only capture Paul and Silas. Because remember, we still have Luke and Timothy are riding with them. Why weren't Luke and Timothy captured? Luke's a Gentile. Timothy's half Jewish. But Paul and Silas are 100% Jewish and look it and still live it. And so there is a little bit of racial profiling happening here. They grab those two, and as well as Paul and Silas are the ringleaders of the group. But they grab those two and say, they're Jews. They're not like us. They're those others. See, at the time, in these Roman cities, and Philippi is a Roman city, there are two sets of laws, two sets of standards of living. You have Roman citizens who are under one set of strictly guarded and protected civil and personal rights. And anyone else that isn't a Roman citizen, if you were just a traveler passing through, you really didn't have any rights. You were basically subject to the whims and ideas of the mobs and the magistrates. And so these group of men bring Paul and Silas to the magistrates, to the local authorities. They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. What did Paul and Silas actually do, though? They free a girl from spiritual oppression. I mean, you think that demon was just being nice to her and, like, helping her make money? And no. This girl is oppressed. She's being abused spiritually and as a slave girl, probably physically. And so they bring Paul and Silas to the magistrates. The magistrates were the local authority. They tried cases. They, ins- they in- encouraged and ensured that laws were being followed. They were the local law and order. And so these men bring Paul and Silas before them under these bogus charges. They're Jews, which, again, that's not bogus charge. It's the truth, but it's... let's. Let's make it so that the leaders alienate them right off the bat. They're not like us. They're different. They're disturbing our city. Again, the magistrates, they're the local government, and they want to keep law and order. They don't want the higher-ups to have to come down and change things up and get involved. They want the status quo. They want peace. So a good generalized charge. They're disturbing our city. They approached us. They have this, they've been teaching these things in the courtyard. And it's making people uncomfortable. They advocate customs not lawful for us. Basically, anything that would claim Rome and Caesar weren't the end-all, be-all of all of humanity would be seen as as a custom or something taught that went against what the Romans could believe. Which, this might actually be the only real charge that they're brought up again because the gospel does directly attack the idea that any human institution, any human leadership is subservient to God. And so this, the gospel teaching that Paul and Silas and their crew had been doing, yeah, that one does fly right in the face of Roman law. 
But notice they never actually mention the real reason these guys are mad, because Paul and Silas healed the slave girl. But this combination of lies and mistrust stir the crowd up. Everyone, authorities included, attack and beat them. And after the group is beaten down, they are ordered to be arrested and locked up. They are arrested with the direct order that says to make sure they do not get away, which is kind of overkill. I feel like if you are arresting someone, that's kind of like, that's just the baseline, right? Don't let them get away. Don't let them get out. And so they're put not only in prison, but in the deeper section of the prison, and they have their feet in the stocks. They are chained up. They aren't going anywhere. Paul and Silas have done nothing wrong. Not only did they do nothing wrong, but they were captured, beaten, and thrown in jail for a good and kind thing that they did. They freed a young girl from a very real spiritual bondage. They broke no laws. They committed no crimes. They did a kind act, and for it, they are now locked away in prison. See, there's this notion, this idea that you become a Christian and life just gets easier. You're protected from the issues of the world. You're in this little bubble. It just works out for you. And and, and in fact, that is the complete opposite of what God's people throughout Scripture have endured. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Isaiah 43, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, says the Lord, and through the rivers. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 1 Peter 3, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. All throughout Scripture, these verses and many, many more, they don't say, hey, just in case this weird anomaly of hardship or persecution or tribulation might happen, here's some instruction, here's some encouragement. No, they say, when this happens, when you go through these things, when you step into these moments, when it gets hard, when it gets broken, when it gets messy, God will be with you. God will strengthen you. Hold fast, endure, press on, continue, abide. And that's the mindset that Paul and Silas have clung to. And so we see in verse 25, they're imprisoned. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Paul and Silas are locked up, chained up, beaten up, and what are they doing? Praying and singing hymns to God. And the people are listening. They have an audience, and so they're spending time in worship. Now, you see, you and I have, have the benefit of hindsight, right? We just read this passage. We know how this plays out. And so we say, yeah, of course, it's Paul and Silas. Of course, they're spending time praying and singing songs. But it's because they know, you know, they're going to get out. So it's going it's to all work out for them. But in real time, Paul and Silas didn't know that they were going to get out. They didn't know any of what was about to happen was about to happen. As far as they knew, this is the end. Right? They're charged with disturbing order and teaching things that would go against Roman custom and law. They're dead. In their minds, this is how they're spending their final night. And still they choose to worship. Doesn't make any sense. 
kind of like a couple of chapters ago when Peter was arrested and he is chained to two different guards on each side and he's sleeping so deeply that when the angel comes to break him out, the angel's got to basically kick him in the side to tell him to get up. He's sleeping so peacefully. There is that phrase in the Bible, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Surpasses all understanding means it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It doesn't have any kind of grounding here in what we would experience as reality. When I was in college, um, I transferred my sophomore year. I transferred to Trinity International University. And uh, that year, a few months into the school year, uh, a friend of mine, a girl on our, our sister floor, her dad passed away. And uh, a couple days, a couple days later, RRA came to came into our dorm and said, "Hey, we're going to go over to the to the girl's dorm. Um, she wants to have a time of worship and prayer." And so I remember going to the girl's dorm, going to the common area on the first floor, and it was us and girls from the sister floor and some other people and. RA's leading worship, and we're just sitting around singing, and I remember in the middle of the room, there's this girl, Chrissy, and her mom sitting in chairs just hugging each other, weeping, and singing about how great our God is. See, it doesn't make sense. A peace that surpasses all understanding doesn't make sense. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are not based on us. They are not based on our circumstances. They are not based on what we experience here. They are based on God working in and through us. These things are not from us. They are not things that we create upon ourselves. It is what God is doing in our midst. And in the midst of this late night worship session, something happens. An earthquake hits, and all the doors are open. The shackles have come undone. The jailer wakes up. He's clearly working hard. And he notices the prison doors open. He assumes everybody made a break for it. It says in verse 27, he takes his sword. When he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Again, going back to Roman law, He's responsible for those prisoners. If even one of them escaped, his penalty would be death. And not only death for him, but in shame for generations. His entire family, his extended family, would be exiled and excommunicated from the community. They would be seen as outsiders. They themselves would be punished. And so to avoid that, he figures, I'm dead either way. So he's going to take his sword, kill himself to at least protect his generation, protect his family, protect his household, protect everybody else. Paul stops him in verse 28. He yells out, hey, we're all here. Nobody went anybody. Don't kill yourself. Why are they still there? Why not leave? I mean, for Paul and Silas, wouldn't they think, right, they're in the middle of praying and worshiping. This earthquake happens. The door flings open. Their shackles just fall off. Wouldn't they just, like, read the room and say, all right, God's doing a thing. Let's go. It's basically what happened to Peter, right? Doors, gates flung open when he was arrested. He just kind of got let out. So isn't God doing another thing? Why, why wouldn't they leave? Even more so, why wouldn't the other prisoners leave? I don't have a real answer for, for any of that other than to say I think it's the jailer. 
I think Paul and Silas knew what would happen to this man if they left. I think they knew that if they go, he's dead. And so they don't want to cause him any harm. Verse 29, the jailers all turned around. He calls for lights. He rushes in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. He is all mentally turned around. He gets some lights going. He goes to where Paul and Silas were kept. He falls down in fear. He knew what, would hap- what had happened here was not normal. He knew this earthquake. He knew just the whole situation. Something was off. Something was different. And he falls at the feet of Paul and Silas. And he says in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Context is everything, right? What context is he asking this question? I would say it's probably not spiritual freedom. I don't think he's considering the consequences of his sins and asking, Paul, Silas, what do I have to do to become justified before the eyes of God? I I don't think he's talking about spiritual salvation here. Now, maybe the jailer had heard that this slave girl had been yelling about this message, that these two had a message of salvation. But again, salvation can mean many things, including get you out of trouble, fixing the mess you are in. It's the middle of the night. There's been an earthquake. The jailer is so twisted mentally, he's on the brink of killing himself. These two men have been praying and singing about some God all night long. There's a peace that emanates from them that's kind of weird. It doesn't make sense to anybody around. Guys, I'm, I'm in trouble here. What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to get me out of the mess I find myself in? How does Paul answer? He answers the issue most pressing. He does the same thing Jesus did in the Gospels. For the paralytic that was lowered through the ceiling, for the woman caught in adultery, for the woman that he met at the well, for the thief on the cross, It's not about the circumstance. It's not about that specific moment. It's about the eternal moments that stand before them. Paul speaks to the eternal moments in verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Whether or not the jailer was asking about spiritual salvation, that's where Paul's taking this conversation. That's what the conversation's about now. Now Paul is not saying that the jailer's household would be saved because the jailer gets saved. It's not, if you believe, everybody around you is also going to get saved. That's not how that works. Right? Just because mom prayed a prayer, grandma prayed a prayer, just because they, mom and grandma or dad or uncle or whoever went to church and was a faithful Christian, it kind of just rubs off on me and I get in because they got in. That's not how that works. What Paul is saying is that your household can be saved because You are a leader, and you're going to have influence, and more so because this message of the gospel is for all people. It is for everybody in your house, not just you, not just the man of the house as it was in that time, but for your wife, for your kids, for any servants, for anybody who would put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation is available. This is not an elitist thing. All are invited to the table. All are invited to reconciliation. And that's exactly what happens. Paul and Silas share the message of the gospel with this jailer and with his family. And they put their faith in Jesus. We saw earlier when Lydia got saved, when we looked at it last week, immediately she gets saved, she gets baptized, and she immediately wants to put into practice 
this newfound relationship with God that she had by caring for those for these men, for by showing some hospitality for housing this group. Here in verse 33, uh, something similar happens. In verse 33, it says, He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. This jailer gets some cloth, some water, some ointment, and he spends time washing the wounds, washing the beatings Silas and Paul had endured. These marks, these welts, these cuts and bruises, these marks of persecution in the name of Christ, these things led to this meeting and this moment, this divine appointment that God had orchestrated. And this jailer spends time cleaning those wounds. He washes them. And then he himself is symbolically washed clean through baptism, he and his family. And much like we saw with Lydia, the new family of believers are overcome with joy and they are clamoring for fellowship. They are clamoring to welcome these men into their house, to share a meal with them and celebrate what God had done. How God took something old and made it new. How God took something dead and broken in their sin and trespasses and made them alive in Christ. Hospitality, community, connection, these are the immediate marks of people receiving the Holy Spirit. Fellowship with one another is important. It is vital. Don't neglect the gift of community that you have been given in the form of your brothers and sisters in Christ, in the form of the church, because it is a vital part of being a Christian, being part of the family of God, is being together, engaging in fellowship, engaging in relationship, connecting and building those things up, building one another up. They spend the night and they eat and they celebrate. And I'm sure Paul and Silas taught some more about what it is that they just put their faith in, what they just got baptized into. And then daybreak comes. And Paul and Silas willingly go back to prison. See, now it's not just about a random jailer's life that was at stake, but it's a brother in Christ. And so they go back. And they sit in prison. They chain themselves back up, willingly. And a message comes down saying, you could go free. Things like this happen. Beatings, arrest, a night or two in prison, then let go with no explanation, no trial, no anything. It, it was kind of common practice in Roman cities because it kind of just instilled a little bit of terror and chaos and fear among the people. Be careful. If you're not a Roman, be careful because anything could happen to you like that. And it's at this point that Paul and Silas decide to let it be known who they were in regards to their citizenship. We see in verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, meaning they hadn't gone to trial. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul was born a Roman citizen. Uh, he was born into it. He's from Tarsus. We'll find out again later. He'll talk about it later. That this is, this is part of his credentials. This is part of his credibility. Silas apparently is also a Roman citizen. We don't know if it's by birth or if he paid the fee to be able to kind of have Roman citizenship given to him. Either way, they're Roman citizens. And like I said earlier, there's two forms of life in Roman cities that are under Roman rule. There is the one for outsiders where there's really no rules, no justice, no anything. And then there's the one for the Roman citizens where they are protected, where there are many rules and steps that leadership needs to go through. If you want to get a Roman citizen arrested, 
be thrown in jail. You're going to have to have a lot of proof, a lot of evidence, a lot of witnesses. It's going to be very hard for you to do that. If you're a Roman citizen, by law, you couldn't be beaten publicly. That was a thing that just didn't happen. If you were a Roman citizen, by law, you were guaranteed a trial. That didn't happen. By law, you could not spend time in prison before your trial. At every turn, Paul and Silas's rights had been ignored and violated. Now, we don't know why they waited till now to bring this up. Maybe they didn't have a chance because, you know, the beating. Or maybe they were divinely led and God said, keep it to yourself. Either way, they waited. So why now? Why does Paul make a big deal of this now? Paul could have played this Roman citizen card at any point, but by waiting and suffering unjustly, he was doing a couple of things. See, Paul, again, has always got a bigger picture in mind. Here, Paul and Silas are living out what it looks like for a Christian to suffer as Christ did. He was a living example to these new believers. There's a little church happening in Philippi. It's starting to grow. It's starting to build some momentum. Paul is setting an example. This is what it looks like to follow after Christ. This is what it looks like to take up your cross and follow. This is what it looks like to suffer on behalf of the gospel, to live as an example to these new believers in Philippi. But also, he was helping lay a foundation in Philippi. Because again, the reputation and relationship of outsiders and outsiders, even this idea of Christianity, this would be seen as an outside concept, something that would attack potentially Roman authority. And this new church group is going to need some stability, need some influence. It's going to need some good reputation if it's going to be able to grow and even just survive. And so now, after this whole thing, the relationship between the local church in Philippi and the Roman government is going to look very different because amidst all of those different laws, and we talked about how the jailer was responsible for that, for those prisoners, and death could come to him if a prisoner got away. So too, if a magistrate, if a local authority broke the kind of laws and rules that they broke by arresting Paul and Silas, they themselves could find themselves in prison, if not dead. That's why they're so scared. That's why they're so worried. That's why they show up. And they come apologizing, pleading, please just go. Please just get out of here. Please don't say anything. Please, we're sorry. Just, just go. What Paul is doing is setting a foundation for the church in Philippi to give them some grace with the local authority. The leaders got humbled that day publicly, even for just a day, and that mattered. Justice. Even small moments of justice are glimpses and reminders for everyone that there is a day coming when justice will be the norm. And so they are finally apologized to and asked to leave. And Paul and Silas say, sure, we're going to leave, but we're going to take our time doing it. And they first go to Lydia and let her know what's going on, tell her about how their night went. And they went out, verse 40, they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They saw the brothers and encouraged them and departed. Who were the brothers? Because remember, we, we said that there was less than 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi. They didn't have a synagogue. And clearly, Jewish people in general are not treated well in Philippi. So who are these brothers? Maybe it's some of the households of Lydia. Maybe it's some of the household of the jailer. 
Maybe the family of that slave girl who was freed from her demonic oppression, maybe some of them heard the gospel and followed. Maybe those prisoners who were sitting there at night, maybe they heard and followed. Regardless of whoever it was, what we're seeing is the beginning of a new church community in this city. A unique, diverse group of a bunch of people from very different places, culturally speaking. We have people like Lydia with wealth and influence. We have this jailer, a Roman staunch defender of the cult of Caesar, now turned away and toward the gospel. The way the language changes here at the end of the passage, Luke is staying behind himself, a Gentile, someone who's been walking in the faith but, but still just observing. The, he's sticking around to, to help build up this church. We have this unique group of people, this collection from all kinds of different walks of life because that's what the gospel does. It unites people. It takes a bunch of people who have no reason to be together, no reason to have influence or relationship together, and it puts them together, and it binds them as a community and as the family of God. In the gospel, we realize not only our desperate need for a savior, but the great, great love that God has for us to send his son to die for us on the cross for our sins, for all of our sins. That is the thing that unites us. The church is united by the love of God, which he gives freely and completely to all who would admit their need for a savior, believe that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross for their sins and choose for Jesus to be your savior and king. Much of this passage revolves around the injustice and the abuse that we see through this servant girl who has had to endure it as well as Paul and Silas's own experiences. And when we either see or we experience justice, injustice for ourselves, when we see and experience suffering and abuse, we want to rally against it, don't we? We want to fight back. It's the spirit of God in us that helps us to not only identify these areas of evil in the world, but to have the boldness to stand up and take action when we see injustice, when we see abuses. And that's a good thing to do. Be informed. Take action. Be a help. Shine the light of the gospel with your words and in your actions. Amen. That's a great thing to do. Get involved. We see it happen all the time, and we need more and more Christians in public places, in public spaces, proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel in areas that are normally uh, very dark and have very little gospel influence. When Horatio Spafford received that letter from his wife that said, Saved alone, what shall I do now? He immediately books to set sail for England. While he's sailing, the ship captain who knew of the tragedy, knew of that ship crashing, and knew Horatio was on board, knew he had lost his daughters, he calls Spafford up to the deck of the ship as they are about to pass, pass by the very place that ship with his daughters went down, the very place his daughters died. And in that moment, Horatio Fafford was overcome with words of comfort and hope. And he takes a pen and paper and he writes them down. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. 
and has shed his own blood for my soul. When we see, not if, but when we see or experience adversity and injustice and brokenness in this world, do not miss and skip Paul and Silas's response to these things. Whether it was the servant girl or their own chains, their reaction was grounded in worship and proclaiming the gospel. We want to see justice and reconciliation and peace and unity and equality. We want to see all of these things. We want to see the end of the brokenness of this world. And one day that will happen fully and completely in the return of Christ. But for now, it happens daily. It happens in small moments and interactions by and through the power of the gospel in our lives. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes and encourages the churches there that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. As we run to God, as we rest in him and pursue knowing him deeper and deeper, walking closer with him, we begin to unravel the great dimensions of his love for us in Christ. May we never be short-sighted enough to try and take matters into our own hands without first reflecting on, embracing, and resting in the grace of the gospel. May we always be overwhelmed by the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God for us because it is those dimensions, it is dimensions uncalculable that would, that would have God love the world so much, see us in our sins, see us in our rebellion, and say, I'm going to make a way to have a relationship with them. I'm going to make a way to have new relationship with them, not based on them, but based on Jesus' perfect righteousness, so that we can be in perfect relationship, so that they can be my sons and daughters, not enemies and rebels, but that I can love them and embrace them and care for them. As you see and experience the darkness and brokenness of this world, remember the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, hold fast, abide, rest, because I have overcome the world. That is where we find our hope, in the life, death, burial, and resurrection, in the power of the gospel, and in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for we thank you for so much, and we thank you that we have opportunities like this, passages like this, reminders like this, that the world is dark and messy and broken, and it's been that way for a very long time. Injustice runs rampant, and hardship comes even when we do all the right things, even when we are walking in line, especially sometimes when we are walking in line with you. God, give us the strength and the courage to stand up when we see injustice, when we experience those things, and to call sin for what it is, sin and rebellion. But God, also give us the humility, give us the reminder, give us the Give us more of you and help us to remember that it's the gospel that matters. It's the gospel that is going to fix what is broken. Our city marred by violence and 
depression and sin can only be truly rebuilt by the gospel. A country, a world torn apart because of any number of different views and beliefs and personal and political things, contention and pain and hate. Behavior modification can't fix these things. The gospel can. There is good news for all of us. That the Savior of the world has come and has lived and has died and has rose again, never to defeat, never to taste death again, to defeat it and to give us new life and new hope. God, I pray that there are, for those this morning who, who don't know you, Lord and Savior, who don't know you as King, who don't have that relationship with you, who don't understand and haven't experienced, haven't known experientially the height and depth and breadth and length of the love that you have for us. Oh God, I pray that this morning would be a day of salvation for those people, that they would come to ask, how might I be saved? And know that the the only way is by putting faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray that today is that day. That today is that day that people can look back on and see it as that day that changed everything. God, for those who are already your sons and daughters, I, I pray that we might walk faithfully and we walk with our eyes fixed fixated on Christ, and we walk motivated and led by the good news of the gospel, and the grace, and the mercy, and the hope, and love, and justice, and all of those things that are wrapped up in it, that that might be our driving factor, that regardless of what we experience, whether good or bad, that we might also be able to say, it is well with my soul, not because we can do anything, but because God, you have done everything. You have made a way, and you are for us and not against us, and you continue to remind us and show us you are there. God, we thank you and praise you for all that you are, for all that you do, for all that you're present.